Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, Ben, we're back. We are talking about the end of 3rd Nephi. So the conclusion of Jesus Christ's visitations to the Nephites, I guess to the people of Americas, there are no more Nephites or Lamanites. No manner of ites. Yeah, no matter of ites. We are are doing away with the ites. That's going to be a great discussion when we get to to 4th Nephi in this discussion. But uh, man, we're comprising chapters 27 through the end of of 3rd Nephi, uh, so 27, 28, 29, and 30, and then the, the one chapter in 4th Nephi. But man, these are so, these are so dense. Uh, chapter 27, I know we have a lot to say about 27. 28 has some really powerful stuff to talk about concerning uh, the glory of Christ and the powers of heaven. And Mormon really seems to be enamored with the three Nephites. Man, he, he goes into kind of you know, a lot of de- he goes into more detail about the three Nephites than he goes into the three hundred years of peace in Fourth Nephi. So, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of his connection. You know, he says he's seen them and they've ministered to him. So I think it kind of has special place in his heart, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So he's connected there. But yeah, in twenty-seven we have Jesus Christ. Just to kind of go do a quick overview of these chapters. In chapter twenty-seven, Jesus Christ is talking to them about the naming of the church. So he starts off with, you know, what should you name the church? And then he gets into a discussion about this this blessedness that they they take upon themselves his name and that they are baptized. And so baptism has this really rich discussion that we're going to see throughout the rest of uh, rest of the chapters here. In chapter twenty eight, we talk about the the apostles, or I'm sorry, the disciples that are called. And we get our first introduction into the three Nephites and into and into their living and until uh, until Christ comes in the second coming. Then from that time, we talk about chapter 29, which gets into the Book of Mormon coming forward to the Gentiles. Chapter 30 is a very short chapter. In fact, it's only two verses long. And there we end up having this warning that uh, the Lord wanted Mormon to give us concerning a whole list of sins that we're supposed to forsake and not to engage in, which it's kind of a repeat, so I'm kind of interested about uh, maybe about what you think is why they why they included this here, and then fourth Nephi, and man, as I as I've said it probably half dozen times already. Once I get to, I'm going to sit down with Mormon. I'm going to sit down with Mormon at some point. I'm going to be like, listen, I, I love the way you put it. You almost gave more about the Nephite coinage and the weights and measures than you did about <laughs> Zion, and so I'm like, I'm, I got a beef with Mormon. I mean, it's like I. It's like, I, I need more than three pages, guy. Can you just yeah. give me more than three pages? I mean, I'm sure I can read between the lines. That's great. But give me give me some stuff about Zion here. And then uh, and then he'll say, well, didn't you not read the entire book before that? And I'll be like, all right, well, that's not an excuse. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So here in chapter 27, we begin with this conversation about the naming of the church. And, you know, for us right now, this is a little bit of a hot button topic because with President Nelson's recent emphasis on 
talking about the full name of the church and emphasizing the name of Jesus Christ in our lives and in our in our religious service and our religious identities. You know, we've been Mormons for so long, and so we've adopted the the name of Mormon. And sometimes that's a habit that's hard to break, but we are counseled to you know really take that to heart. And we're offered a lot of blessings that uh, that will come for that. But I find it interesting here that the way he talks about how they should go about naming this. And and we've had a little bit of a discussion about this before, but I really think there is more and more evidence here about how the church is just kind of a natural manifestation of our living into our humanity. That when we come into this world, the first thing, you know, we're given language and we come to this world, we're given a nationality. And we're, when we come to this world, we're given a religious, religious identity. And when we come to this world, we are given narratives and stories and we're told what to believe and we're told how to believe and we're told where we fit in and we're told where we don't fit in. And our culture and society and everything that we are taught to think through and about informs our identity. Part of coming to Christ is a way of putting away all of these false earthly identities that have been crammed down our throat and that we're living into because it's a lot of these identities that we were given since we were, since we were children and we don't even have these memories that we started to be forming ideas in these identities about who we are and who other people are and our family nucleuses or the lack thereof and our community nucleuses and how society operates and the unspoken rules of our culture that we just know that we're supposed to do it this way because it's the way things are done and then when somebody comes into that culture and doesn't know the nuances of it, they stick out. And so we begin to realize that our lives are so informed by the world around us that it's hard for us to be able to try to step outside of that and to see a world that we have no context to. And that's the world that Jesus Christ is offering. He's coming to us with these messages, especially from the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, things that we've talked over and over and over again about, is these are not doctrines that are going to keep you just being a good person in the same paradigm that you've always been in and that you were born into. These are paradigms that when we truly understand what Christ is trying to talk about, radically shake up, alter, and bring us out of those old narratives into something new. And the manifestation of that living into our true humanity as opposed opposed to the false identities, or as Thomas Merton would say, the false self, I see is this, this like, you know, this group that you are bringing and you're being brought into, what should you call this? Well, of course you're going to call this, this, I typify, you know, this is, I see Jesus Christ saying, I typify of how this expression of your humanity is coming. You're wanting to get together into, into groups and to be able to edify each other and to build each other up and to mourn with those that mourn and to be able to take care of each other. And that there's this natural emanation of our humanity that you want to be together with each other. And what do you call this? It's the same thing that you've called yourselves. This is Christ. Take upon yourselves the name of Christ. And so this, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit before, Ben, and we talked just briefly about Mosiah chapter five. It's I know it's one of your favorite verses. You've quoted from it quite a bit. I've quoted from it quite a bit, but it's in Mosiah five, chapter eight. And he says, and under this head, ye are made free. And there is no other head whereby ye can be made free. There is no other name whereby you that salvation cometh. Therefore, I would that you should take upon you the name of Christ, all you that have entered into the covenant with God, that you should be obedient unto the end of your lives. So this this is great because this also introduces another topic that that I've brought up before. I know, Ben, you've hinted at it and you've talked about it too before, but it's this concept in the Book of Mormon where I, I see that there's two different people, the Nephites, the way that they typically were structured and they were in a very 
pulled in the Jewish traditions is that they lived and acted as though they made the oath first, and that once you made an oath and a covenant, then you just lived into the axiomatic rules of whatever oath you covenanted. So if you covenanted that you were only going to take five steps a day before you sit down, then for whatever, it doesn't even matter if there's meaning behind it. You only take five steps a day before you sit down, and that's what you do for the rest of your life. If you said you're going to do it, you just make an oath and you live into it, and you make exactactness on what you covenanted to do. And so this is the flavor that we get with Zoram back with Nephi and about how he covenanted to never to never run away and to not go back to Jerusalem. And just the oath itself put Nephi's and his brother's fears away from him going back to Jerusalem just by him saying, I'm not going back. Mm-hmm. Moroni, he's like in the middle of a battle. He stops mid-battle from killing the enemies. He's like, stop. If you covenant not to kill us again, then at this point, we'll stop killing you. I mean, that's a, that's a weird paradigm to be in, to be in mid-battle and all of the psychological effects of being in the middle of battle and to have the the psychological wherewithal to stop and then simply say, listen, if you promise not to come against me ever again, I'm going to let you go. And to have that presence of mind and that culture that's so ingrained in them to be like that. And so the Nephites are all about making covenants first and then living into them and just obeying the covenants. Whereas there's other evidences of ways of doing this where the people in the waters of Mormon, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, we see it again in Helam in 6, there's a lot of different situations where they are converted to this whole concept of their inner humanity in expressing this relationship with God. And then after that, they, they want to symbolize this somehow. They want to add some kind of outward manifestation that they can participate in as a remembrance of this conversion that they've had, this experience and this oneness with God that they've had before. And in that, then they make an oath or a covenant or a promise. You know, the, you know. then we have baptism being enacted by, by Alma the Elder in the waters of Mormon. Then we have the swords being buried by the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. We see the swords being buried again in Helam in 6. So there's just different ways of doing that. And so when I look at Jesus Christ here in these verses, I see not just a proscriptive call it the name of Christ, and then whatever you dictate after that is my will. What I'm looking at with these pages is coming out of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and all of the experiences that we talked about before. Now they're coming into this presence where they've become converted, and Christ is just giving them an identity and a way of being able to speak and to name this experience that they're already having. Yeah, so all of these things are simply the witness or the effect or the visible manifestation of what's happening uh, within, in the heart. And so someone takes upon themselves the name of Christ in their heart, and then the outward manifestation of that is that they they want to be with like people. So they want to join into a community or a church that is called after that name. And the collective is not named differently from the individual because the collective is not greater than the individual in this sense. Everyone is has taken upon themselves the name of Christ. And so, yeah, you know, you see people who have taken upon themselves the name then forming the church rather than uh, what we do often tend to do, just like you were describing, you know, we, we get someone into the church and then there's this effort to sort of impose the name of Christ upon them, right? (laughs) Right. It's not that that can't necessarily work, but it's not the natural order of things. Okay. So like 
the natural order of things is to be created spiritually before being created physically. And so the the spiritual change has to happen first before there's a physical manifestation of it. And if it happens the other way, you know, we've had discussions about this before. It's just, it's not exactly, you know, it's not the ordained way, so to speak, or the preferred way (laughs) for things to happen. And ultimately, if it happens that way, you have to go back and make it happen spiritually before the physical makes sense anyway, right? I mean, so much of what we do, you know, we go through these ordinances or whatever, but there's no life to them until maybe we've gone through them so many times that we then begin to come to an arrival of the of the spiritual understanding that that we really need to have as we mature and then all of a sudden the ordinance or the physical manifestation makes sense it gains life whereas before it was kind of dead to us right anyway i see this this pattern and this idea and this concept repeated all over in the book of mormon you know and and i see it in its most basic form that spiritual creation happening before the physical I really like how this ties into what President Nelson was just saying in General Conference about Israel and the gathering of Israel, because there was sort of a redefinition of that to me, is what I got out of it, because so much um, we look at Israel as the covenant people of the Lord, and that's how I have kind of defined it forever. But the way that President Nelson was talking about it was, no, these are the people that are willing to let God prevail in their life. And they're already Israel. And our job isn't to like go and make that happen because the Spirit's going to do that. Our job simply is to gather them, to show them, hey, we're like-minded. Want to be with us so that we can help each other and strengthen each other's testimonies and so to speak, right? So I really like that that does seem to more focus on this concept of there being an actual spiritual existence of that substance before the physical manifestation of it happens. Anyway, so yes, this discussion here of Christ is very organic going from the point of, hey, the people have taken upon themselves the name of Christ. So the when they gather together, that's who they are. They're just the body of Christ because they're together. The idea here, he, he brings up Moses, which is which is interesting in this context, because, you know, he has just told the people, hey, we're done with the law of Moses. And for him to mention it here is almost, to me, he's basically just saying, you know, stop looking to others as your exemplars. You know, no matter how great the prophets are or whatever, look to me as your exemplar. And that's really what he says throughout the rest of chapter 27. Yeah, what I love here, following right along that, Ben, because that really just kind of dominoes right into verse 14 here. Um, In fact, I'm going to go to uh, verse 13. But behold, I have given unto you my gospel, and this is the gospel which I have given unto you, that I came into the world to do the will of my Father, because my Father sent me. And my Father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross. And after I had been lifted up upon the cross, that I might draw all men unto me, that as I have been lifted up by men, even so should men be lifted up by the Father to stand before me to be judged of their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And for this cause have I been lifted up. Therefore, according to the power of the Father, I will draw all men into me, and they may be judged according to their works. So, fascinating on several accounts here, because we have the imagery here of the cross. So, this is Jesus talking about his cross. Not Gethsemane. He doesn't mention Gethsemane, 
as as we do now in in modern LDS reference that we we place more emphasis on Gethsemane than we do the cross. But yet here Jesus doesn't even talk about Gethsemane. He doesn't talk about that moment in the time that he spent there in in pain and agony in Gethsemane. He's going right here to the cross. And my father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross. You know, we often forget that that atonement was a two-part series. It was Gethsemane and it's the cross. You know, this cross symbolism we've talked a little bit about has been so lost in our faith, uh, our, our belief tradition, as it were, and we've really relegated it away as a symbol of death, when in actuality, the cross, through much of Christian history, has actually been synonymous and, and symbolically synonymous with the tree of life. Yeah, life. That even partaking of the tree is to partake of the love of God. So the sacrament is even an offering of the love of God in that regard. So we have these trees that we are supposed to partake of. And from the cross was a tree we partake of the fruit thereof and, and live. So in this, we see a self-sacrificial deity. We see a God that was sent, that Jesus Christ was sent to be lifted up upon the cross. And that after he'd been lifted up upon the cross, that that's not the end. And that's really where I see the emphasis of the church trying to take it, is not that the cross is the end, but then there's more to it afterwards, which I think is great. But we can't, we can't kill the symbolism of the cross with it. It's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Sure. The cross is symbolic of the whole experience. I mean, you could talk endlessly about the symbolism of the cross. But the cross itself, right, is the meeting of two different ways. And so it's you have at the center of the cross the point of, of maximum meaning and maximum suffering. We, we talk about Gethsemane before, and we talk about the tomb afterwards. And, but the cross is, is the center of that, so it becomes the symbol and focus of the entire experience uh, symbolically. And then there's just like a million other things we could say about that symbolism. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, but in, yeah, in the symbol, and I love the symbolism here because once we come from the cross, man, we, we go right back into symbolism with baptism. And as we already said, baptism is a really heavy theme in these last few chapters because it continues in verse 16, and it shall come to pass that whoso repenteth and is baptized in my name shall be filled Again, beatitude language going on all over the place. Because repentance is just seeing God in a new way. You learn to see God in a new way, you're going to see yourself in a new way. And this is one of the hardest conversations that I've had with, with a lot of people in that when you start to use the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount as your hermeneutic, as the, the structure and the framework and the scaffolding by which you then go out and you interpret scripture with, all of a sudden people are like, well, that just changes the entire nature of God. Yes, it does. <laughs> and I'm like, like yeah, that, that's that's the not point. that's not an aside. That's the point, right? That's that's why we're doing it because when you are born into the world and you're given all the world's ideas about God, for you to then take that into read into scripture and pull out of scripture, you're just projecting yourself in and back out of scripture. Yeah, the natural man is going to see a wrathful, vengeful, violent God. But that's what he were literally told to do. You have got to repent to see me differently. In other words, repentance is, listen, once you have seen me differently, because you are who you are and I am who I am and you are my child, you see me differently is going to inherently change who and what you are. And you're going to, and you're going to live into that. That's the repentance. 
in doing that, of course, when we repent, baptism is the symbol of being poor in spirit. So the very first beatitude of blessed are the poor in spirit, the blessedness there again, it's this word makarios, which in context of how it's being used here in the sermon and the beatitudes in the sermon, is this becoming at one and becoming and, and becoming in this conversation and this union with the divine. And so baptism is that symbolism of death, of the death of the ego, the death of the old, the death of all of that identity that has been crammed down your throat your whole life. All of that identity, that accusing voice that is inside your head, that accuser that has come in and has taken over in your life, that's gone. It's gone. You don't have to think about it anymore. You don't have to worry about it anymore. It's just, it's gone. Now you're someone new. Now, once it's new and what's, there's something that's, you're not in context of that old person. Now what becomes present? And then here we have that beatitude is like, if you're hungry, now let me fill you up. You know, I really like going back to what you were saying about 14 and 15, this really powerful description here, these phrases that I might draw all men unto me. You know, this is really referencing, alluding to the, the persuasive power of the atonement that his that Christ's way is the way of persuasion and mercy this idea this word draw you know doesn't imply a a coercive force but rather a a loving force right and a persuasive force i like in verse 15 it says for this cause have i been lifted up therefore according to the power of the father i will draw all men unto me well, what is the power of the Father? You know, we're going to talk about this next chapter, I think, but you know, this really gets us into a discussion of the priesthood and how it fits in with the power of the atonement itself. That the priesthood is only based on the principles of righteousness, you know, persuasion, love, gentleness. And that is the power of the Father. And that's how Christ operates and works, and he doesn't work in any other way. So then we get into the we get to these next verses that talk about things like cast into the fire from whence they can no more return because of the justice of the Father. Well, you cannot return while viewing God this way because you don't see the way. And Christ's whole purpose was to put on display for you the true nature of God so that you will no longer view it that way, that you will be drawn unto him by the way of persuasion, not by fear of punishment, but by love. And so that's that complete change, that repentance process, change of perception to where you're no longer viewing God this way. Because if this is the way you're viewing God, like it talks about in verse 17, you cannot see him. You can't return to him. You literally can't repent because that is what's getting in your way. Yeah, going back to what I said and with what you just said, Ben, I, I while you were talking, I had this thought about some pages from a book that my wife was reading that she had posted on social media recently. And I'm not going to say who the author is because the author is, is it's not an LDS author, but it's a person that if, if I were to talk about it, a lot of people would reject it just out there. So I just want to let these words, and I'm going to read a little bit, uh, it's going to be a longer quote, it's a couple pages here. But just let this sink in, because just like what you were talking about with reevaluating what this fu these fires mean and realize what the purging means and realize what all this, this means, we've got to start to recognize that through this love of God, what also Satan is in our lives. 
you know, we've got to start to make the sense of seeing who and what God is and, and that, that accusing voice. So Satan in Hebrew means the accuser. And so let's go through a little bit. I'm going to read this, uh, this passage here. And because I think it brilliantly and beautifully illustrates and, and, and is able to contextualize how the accusing voice works in our head. Okay. So it says, there's a reason that in parts of the Hebrew Bible, the devil is called Hasatan, which translates as the accuser. No matter what you believe about the devil, whether you believe it's an actual being, the human forces of evil, or just the shadow side of our own beings, we all know the voice of the accuser. The voice of shame in our heads, that's the accuser. The accusing voice telling me that I, I am what I've done, or that what I am is wrong, the voice that tells us lies about ourselves and other people. The accuser is the voice which consistently and continually updates me on the current distance between my ideal self and my actual self, between my ideal personality and my actual personality, between my ideal weight, like my driver's license weight, or my actual weight. The one that repeats harmful things said to me as a child, that's the accuser. The voice of the accuser makes us eat less than we should or makes us, or more than we should. It makes us spend more hours at work than is healthy. It makes us go on to ridiculous lengths to try to prove the wrong, the voice wrong. Or it goes to try to prove it right. Sometimes we try to silence that voice with addictions, with alcohol, with sex, with shopping, with carbohydrates, or we even try to patch it with success. All the things which again are morally neutral in and of themselves at times, but all things which can cause damage when we try to use them to mute or to muffle the accuser. So to be clear, the accuser is not conscience. Conscience says, you were rude to your coworker, maybe it's a good idea to apologize for being such a jerk. It's necessary for us to be convicted of our sins. As Paul says, we all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. This is the human condition from which none are spared. So when I speak about the accuser, what I'm talking about is we are crippling the message on repeat in our heads. That's something different from a guilty conscience. That's shame. Shame is like wearing our already forgiven sins like a spiritual name tag saying, Hi, I'm a liar. Hi, I'm a thief. Hi, I'm an adulterer. Hi, I'm a drug addict. Or like wearing a psychological name tag, Hi, my name is this horrible thing that my dad used to call me. The accuser may try to convict us of the distance between our ideal self or our actual self, but the truth is no one has ever come to become their ideal self. The ideal self is a moving target. It's a mirage of water on a desert road. The more we struggle to reach it, the thirstier we become, and yet we're no closer to the actual water. I'm not saying that God will get you to the mirage. What I'm saying is that the self God loves, the self that God is in a relationship with, is your actual self. God isn't waiting for you to become thinner, to become married. He's not there to waiting for you to be celibate, or more ladylike, or less crazy, or more spiritual, or less of an alcoholic, or anything else in order to love you. Also, I would argue that since your ideal self doesn't actually exist, because that ideal self is the ego, it would follow that the you everyone in your life loves is your actual self too. See, in Acts, God comes to Peter in a vision. My friend Michael Flick calls it the buffet of abominations. Peter has a vision of all the animals that were considered unclean at the time. The animals descended from heaven on a huge tablecloth, maybe representing all the things that had freaked Peter out, things that he was told that would make him impure, the stuff that was on the bad list. And God says something that forever destroys the legalistic dualism and erases the boundaries between us and them. Quote, what I consider clean, do not call impure. Unquote. See, what God claims to love, do not deem unworthy of that love. What God has called good, do not call anything other than good. What God has animated with God's own breath and endowed with a soul and God's own image, do not treat with anything less than dignity. 
When that accusing voice is on repeat in your head, know that it is not the voice of God. God's voice is found in the warm sing-song of a mother to her newborn, the one who says, You are beloved. God's voice declares us clean, justified, forgiven, and new. It imparts to us a worthiness that has nothing to do with our efforts or accomplishments or our becoming some imagined ideal. This is the use of the Christian community as I see it. We are here to help each other silence the accuser. Unquote. Now, what I find is powerful in that, in what we're talking about here in the Book of Mormon, is that in verse 19, it says, And no unclean thing can dwell in the kingdom, therefore nothing entereth into his rest, save it be those who have washed their garments in my blood because of their faith and the repentance of all their sins and all their faithfulness unto the end. Right? Mm-hmm. And in verse 20, Now this is the commandment, Repent all ye ends of the earth, and come unto me, and be baptized in my name, that ye may be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost, that ye may stand spotless before me at the last day. And we tend to confuse, we, we bring in the accuser voice and we use the accuser voice to interpret these verses for our lives. Let's read these again with the Beatitudes as our hermeneutic. And no unclean clean can dwell in his kingdom. Okay, so what is unclean? What is his kingdom? Well, we are told that the very first thing in the Beatitudes that brings you into the kingdom of heaven is to be poor in spirit. It's to empty that out. It's what baptism symbolizes. All God is looking for is for us to let go of the pain that we're holding on to. Again, when we think about King Lamoni's father, back in Alma, what, Alma 20, 25 or so, 24, 25, and he declares, I will give up all my sins to know you. That's all he's talking about. Is he saying, listen, I'm going to give up my ego. I'm going to give up my idea. I'm going to give up my idea of self. I'm going to give up all of the stories that I've ever presented about myself, all the bad accusing stories that have ever gone on. I'm going to let all those go, and I'm simply just going to start over just so I can know you. See, that's repentance. Now, this is the commandment. Simply repent. I need you to see me differently. I want you to see me differently than you've ever seen me before. You thought I was wrathful and vengeful and spiteful, and that I was full of anger coming towards you. That's you. That's what you concocted. See, that's the story from Cain at the very beginning. Cain did that. When Cain killed Abel, he's like, listen, I killed Abel. Now everybody wants to come kill me back. And God's like, I'm literally standing right here with you, Cain, and I'm telling you I'm not killing you back. That's not on me. That's on you. I'm here to heal you. And it's in your pride and your ego and in your lack of ability to speak your trauma so that I can heal you and fill you with everything that I have ready to fill you with. I'm just here to try to get you to surrender. And Cain won't. And that's his curse. He has to carry with him his trauma. And so here, if you're not willing to let go of your trauma and to just let it go, God's God's like, I can't fill full cups. You've got to empty your cup out and simply let you fill me and so I can fill you up. You know, this talks to me by the way of the concept of sacrifice in a little bit different way than I've thought of it before. And I wouldn't say that my concept of it was wrong before, but I feel like this is just a little more clear to me that sacrifice, so the the root of that word literally means to make holy. Our concept of of sacrifice, as it is simplistically taught, is often, you know, you give up something good in order to get something better. While that, that may be true, what the Lord really wants us to sacrifice is just what you were talking about. All of these false narratives and ideas and accusations about ourselves. 
in order to receive from him the truth of our identity, to receive his name on us. And so, really, he's not asking us to give up anything that is really of any value (laughs) in any sense. He's really asking us to just give up all of the worthless stuff so that we really can receive an understanding of who we truly are as his children. And that's what sacrifice is, making us holy, because we are now, we've gotten, you know, we've let go, as you say, and we're able to receive that which the Lord really has for us. And so that, that I would say, refines my understanding a little bit more of that concept of sacrifice. So I see it a little bit differently. Here, Christ gets into a discussion with his apostles that's powerful about how they are to emulate him, what their role is going to be among the people, and really calls them to to be as he is. He says here in verse 21, You know the things that you must do in my church. For the works which ye have seen me do, that shall ye also do. For that which ye have seen me do, even that shall ye do. Says it twice. (laughs) (laughs) You know, emulate Christ. When all else fails or when in doubt, do what Christ would do, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I think that in the majority of situations is probably pretty straightforward, and that, but that there can be situations in our life when that's unclear. And I think that as, as we, we look at the example of how Christ taught the disciples here, you know, it says at the beginning of chapter 21 or chapter 27 that they were all together and they were united in prayer, in fasting. And they, you know, they had just, these are all the apostles that had just had this, all these experiences with Jesus. And yet in order for them to all be together and, and asking the right question, as we've talked about before, they had to be united. It says in mighty prayer and fasting, like this was a great effort on their part to empty themselves of all of these preconceived notions about their identity until they could ask the right question. And Christ comes to them and and gives them the answer. Anyway, going along with this this concept of, of who they're to be, that they're to be united as a quorum, so to speak, is what we would call it. But they're to be united in their efforts to, to preach the gospel. And then he calls them judges, which is a very interesting concept in, in light of this whole discussion of justice and, and judgment and God. The qualification for this is is so fascinating to me because it's really just one thing. He says in verse 27, Therefore, what manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. The way that Christ judges us is different from how our our concept of, of being judged from anybody in the world at all. It's a judgment that is completely based on and drenched in and mercy and love. This is how the disciples of Christ are to act in their judgments. Again, completely different from what we would call a judge or a judgment in in the world's sense. You know, I want to go back to what you were saying with about sacrifice. Yeah, you know, that's that's absolutely beautiful because yeah, the majority of the reason, the majority of the definitions rather that we give to sacrifice is that giving up of something of lesser value for something of greater value. We tie that in often into the uh 
the refiner's fire in purging metals and in like metallurgy and in taking out the dross. But the whole idea that is is to be made holy. And I love I love how you talked about that. And when you were talking about that, it brought me back again to Mosiah 5 because I was like, yeah, sacrifice and taking upon ourselves the name of Christ and the freedom that is there when we're made holy. Can we can we imagine the freedom that we would feel if suddenly we weren't that our if our value wasn't derived by the house we lived in? by the car we drove, by the family that we grew up in, by the family name that we have, from the personal identities and the, you know, the the, the many layers of identities and the quote that I shared had offered many of those, right? Our looks into our education, into how smart we are, how much money we make, and into whatever it was, whatever trauma we've experienced in our life, whether or not, no matter what it looks like. And each one of us have a different type of trauma. Everyone, everyone has multi-faceted levels of trauma and the freedom that comes by just letting it go. And so when you come back to that Mosiah chapter five, verse eight, and under this head, ye are made free. See, there's no accusing voice there. Mm-hmm. There's no accusation. And so that springboarding that right into what you said about judgment, Ben, I can't help but think about the woman taken in adultery. Been thinking about her for a couple weeks now, and about Jesus Christ's response. Woman, where is your accuser? Where is the accuser? In other words, woman, where's Satan here? Where's that thing that's coming in to shame you and to bring you down? And to because we use we we think that shame is the motivator to be able to be reconciled or, or to change. It's not. You know the the most serious rebukes I've ever received in my life have simply been declarations of love. Just someone saying, I love you. And knowing the sincerity of that completely changed my life. And so when we read that no other, under no other head are we made free, and there is no other head by where we can be made free, mm-hmm. there is no other name given whereby salvation cometh. It doesn't come any other way. This is it. And we call it Christ. And Jesus comes down, this is the name you should call this thing that's happening to you. It's Christ. It's the name I've taken upon myself. And so, yeah, I love that judgment. We have to start seeing judgment in a new way. Usually we think it means adjudicating and bringing in and balancing the punishment with the with the action. Yeah, well, if that's the case, that is not what happened with the woman taken in adultery. That's not what Jesus Christ did to the woman at the well. When he says, yeah, I know you've been married to several men. I know there are several men that you've been with that aren't your husbands. And the man who you're with now is not your husband. Did he punish her according to the law? Did he adjudicate in this way and bring in and have a trial before her? Is that what happened to the woman at the well? The very first woman, the very first person he sends out to testify of his messiahship is that woman. How powerful is that? Verily, verily, I say unto you, what manner of men ought ye to be, even as I am? Mm -hmm. And what did I do there? I came to set the captive free. I came to liberate them from their sin. You can't be saved in your sin. I came to liberate you from your sin. And by that, you're not identified by the things that you've done. And I know the things that you're doing right now is all riddled in this ego that you have going on. See, that was a really big thing for me, Ben. When, you know, you and I both were engaged in politics for a long time. In fact, <laughs> in fact I remember like the first five years that we were friends, man, the late night conversations, you know, they would go into like one, two o'clock in the morning. And we would just be like haggling politics and arguing politics. And it was a lot of fun most of the time. And at some point, I started realizing that there's just, there's not as much joy in that as I, 
as uh, as there once was and and so i started realizing just how how much the the gospel of jesus christ and this name of jesus christ transforms our lives in bringing us peace we don't have to engage in all of the world's rhetoric we don't have to engage in all of the world's identities we can leave everything behind and it's in leaving that behind like sodom and gomorrah just leaving it behind that that's where the true transformation begins to happen one of the ideas behind the concept of judgment, at least from a legalistic perspective, is that the purpose of justice is to punish because punishment is a deterrent from the person committing said act again. Why is it a deterrent? Well, because they fear the punishment. How does this way of quote-unquote justice, how does it achieve its end? ends through fear. Wow, how different is Christ's way? His extension of mercy does the opposite. What it does, instead of setting at odds the other person, it brings a unity between the judge and the quote-unquote accused. It brings a unity through love and mercy. And while the person who is punished may fear that punishment again, well, what will they do as a consequence of that fear? They will seek to avoid or be away from the executor of that punishment, of the deterrent, because they don't because they fear that, right? That's not what God wants. God doesn't want us to avoid him. He doesn't want us to be farther away from him. He wants us to be reconciled to him. He wants us to be brought into unity with him. Rather than working through that concept of of fear to deter its mercy and love that doesn't make us want to avoid him at all. It brings us closer to him through faith. I see that process as just, you know, stark differences. And one is the way of the world or the way of the accuser, and the other is the way of Christ through the power that that we call the priesthood. All those things are wrapped up in that concept of when we have that sort of a discussion. Yeah, that's a great segue. I don't know if you meant to segue that as well <laughs> as much as I you did. I guess not, because I don't know what well, you're segueing to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, towards the end of chapter 27 and going into chapter 28, now we have this whole concept where this whole, or rather this new story of Jesus coming to the 12 and basically saying, what would you want from me? If there was yeah. something you wanted from me, nine of them want to, once they've lived a, a good, long, healthy life, they want to immediately come to Christ in his kingdom. And they want to be with Christ in his kingdom. And so there's this kind of interesting, and I don't know, maybe it's 72 is a metaphorical number. Maybe it's a sacred some sacred number. I have no idea. But Jesus tells him, he says, and blessed are ye because you have desired this thing. Therefore, after that ye are 72 years old, ye shall come unto me in my kingdom and with me ye shall find rest. Awesome. But then we have these other three, the, the famous three Nephites who Mormon is not allowed to name. Like we have their name. We just don't know which one out of the 12 because the 12 are listed in earlier chapters. Well, we know Nephi dies. So we know Nephi is not one of them. So it's three of the 11, but yeah, we don't know which ones. And I don't get why we can't know. <laughs> like Mormons literally said, the Lord told me not to tell you. And it's like, okay, I, 
I don't know why it would matter if we knew their names. Like we don't know these people from Adam anyway, you know. I, but yeah, anyway, right? that's that's fine. Let's get another <laughs> Wisdom in the Lord. So yeah. it, we have we have the we have the three Nephites called, but I love it here in verse seven of chapter twenty-eight when the Lord is talking to these three Nephites and He's telling them how blessed they are. He says, "Therefore, more blessed are ye, for ye shall never taste of death." But ye shall live to behold all the doings of the Father unto the children of men, even until all things shall be fulfilled according to the will of the Father, when I come in my glory with the powers of heaven. Hmm. So we've talked about this before. The glory that he comes in. Now, we also have back here in Alma 9, and we've talked about this quite a bit, what is the glory of God? So I'm going to read it again. Alma chapter 9, it's, uh, verse 26. And not many days hence comes the Son of God in his glory, and his glory shall be the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, equity, truth, patience, mercy, long-suffering, and quick to hear the cries of his people and to answer their prayers. <laughs> That's the glory of God. Isn't that beautiful? Hmm. That the glory of God, behold, this is my work and my glory, to bring to pass the immortality and the eternal life of men. That is the entire purpose by which God exists, to bring grace and equity and truth and patience and mercy and long-suffering, always quick to hear the cries of his people and to answer their prayers. That's the entire, that's his entire purpose for existence. And then when we read here as well, where he says, and with the powers of heaven, you know, when I read that, I was like, wow, that's section 121 talk right there, right? right? right. Because that's verse 36. And it says in 121 verse 36, that the rights of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven. And the powers of heaven cannot be controlled nor handled only upon the principles of righteousness. Well, what are those principles of righteousness? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's found in verse 41, just on the other column, straight across, right next to verse, uh, right next to the same verse. No power or influence can or even ought to be maintained by virtue of this priesthood only by persuasion, long suffering, gentleness, meekness, and love unfeigned by kindness and by pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul with, without hypocrisy and without guile. Reproving, there is reproof, with sharpness, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, and then showing forth afterwards an increase of love towards him who thou hast reproved. But all of these things will come into you a dominion which shall be an everlasting dominion without compulsory means. Wow. Just, just this one verse in chapter 7 talking about the coming of God again, the second coming. That is the second coming of Christ. He's coming in his glory of grace and equity and truth and patience and long-suffering and quick to hear the cries of his people, all within the bounds of the powers of heaven, which is persuasion and gentleness and meekness and love and kindness and love unfaint. See, we've got to start repenting of the God we think we're worshiping. When we think of a violent, vengeful God who's coming here to destroy the wicked, he's coming to destroy the wicked, yes, but not according to how we've thought about it. That fire, that burning, that has far more to do with the sanctification and the eternal sanctification of his people than anything else. So when we read here in uh, in these chapters where it talks about the wicked burning and the places and the fires and the purging, yeah, that's that's a completely different analogy and story when we see the nature of God completely different than we ever have before. You know, I, I do like what these chapters teach us more about the nature of God. Uh, one of the other uh, themes here that is a little more subtle, 
um, we find in some of these verses. So chapter 27, verse 30 says, Behold, my joy is great, even unto fullness because of you. And then he goes on later in 32, and he says, But behold, it sorroweth me because of the fourth generation from this generation, for they are led away captive by him. Then later here, he says in chapter 28, he says, Ye shall not have pain while ye shall dwell in the flesh, neither sorrow, save it be for the sins of the world. Verse 10, And for this cause ye shall have fullness of joy, and ye shall sit down in the kingdom of my Father. Yea, your joy shall be full, even as the Father hath given me fullness of joy. Here we have these discussions of joy and sorrow. We often take those to be opposite states of being. You can't be both you can't have both joy and sorrow at the same time. Like you're either happy or you're sad, right? You can't be happy and sad. But apparently Christ can be. <laughs> There's something about his character that allows that. And so we need to understand what that means. That the existence in a celestial state does not mean that there is no sorrow whatsoever. Fullness of joy does not mean absence of sorrow. I think that if we really ponder on the character and eternal nature of God for a while, we'll understand exactly how that can be, that he can and should be able to experience sorrow while at the same time having a fullness of eternal joy. And that's because of his children, primarily is what, what we see here. So anyway, I see these two things and these two experiences, joy and sorrow, as both being part of the experience and character of God in a celestial state and not opposites. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, even with that beatitude about mourning and you know the blessedness and coming into the nature, because that's one of the things I've talked, I've thought about before is as the Beatitudes are giving kind of a description of the nature of God and what it means to be in that conversation with God, is like, does God mourn? Is there, is there an emptying with God? In a way, yes, because God is that is that fully emptied being. It's it's that it's the entity that has no ego. God doesn't have an alternative motive or ulterior motive. God doesn't have a bad side. God is completely emptied and he's completely filled. And I like what you said there. God can also be full of joy and yet mourn. And so the, that thing that he can he can be sad and joyful. So is these paradoxes that in uh, in our duality that I've come to actually <laughs> I've come to love these paradox sitting with these paradoxes and to experiencing God kind of in those moments when pondering on these these paradoxes at the same time. I think it's a, a really fun exercise to sit down with and to uh, and do while I'm reading scriptures. Well, I think they are one of the def like I said defining characteristics of of who our Father is. I like uh, how DNC section 132 treats that. Um, one of the phrases it has in there is all heights and depths is what we will inherit in a celestial glory. You know, all heights and depths, the greatest, most amazing things you can experience and also the worst and, and most sorrowful things that you can experience. And that's all part of that celestial state. And that's what God experiences. And that's what we are to inherit as well. You know, here, when when Mormon gets into the discussion of the three Nephites and their state of being, to me, this this looks uh, kind of terrestrial, right? Like, they, they've been taken from a telestial state to what we might call a terrestrial state. Everything that's telestial around them is is completely subject to them. Like, 
it has no power over them. You know, the, the earth does whatever they tell it to do. Fire doesn't have any power over them. The animals have no appetite for them. <laughs> and so it, it, that's kind of what it looks like to me in this description. I don't know if that's the way you've always thought of it, Shiloh, but that they have been now put in more of a terrestrial state preparatory to them than inheriting a celestial state. And that in this terrestrial state, they are able to do the work of the Lord without any telestial hindrances, so to speak. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how much I've actually given thought on that. You know, as far as the telestial and celestial and uh, the, the metaphysics, rather, of the three kingdoms versus, you know, the meta, the epistemology, I'm kind of moving towards more of the distinction of kingdoms as a, as a matter of epistemology rather than mm -hmm. metaphysics. Well, and this doesn't necessarily discount that either, you know. Right. One of the things that you brought up that you brought up here about how the earth doesn't have any power over them and that, you know, that this is the violence of of man that's coming against them, right? So this right. is this is as violent as their world can be. And we're gonna find out later on that uh it gets even worse for them. But violence can't have any hold on them. And so if we were to, you know, I, I've lost count the amount of times when I've talked about things like nonviolence and the power of what this means as far as bearing upon ourselves the cross and taking upon ourselves the uh, the shame of the world. And that whole thing is it from like Jacob 1.8 talks about. But when we talk about Christ coming in his glory and the powers of heaven and about how the apostles, or I'm sorry, the disciples here are ex exhibiting that and are going out and being like Christ. And we say, well, what good is patience and equity and persuasion and gentleness and meekness and love and kindness and and all these things you know kind of like your your hippie your hippie all love movement what, you know what power does that really have anyway well apparently quite a bit because when these disciples act in this truly act in this this is not egoistic love this is not egoistic persuasion this is not ulterior motive this is not trying to salesman and strong arm someone to come into your particular belief system. Your belief system is gone. All you're doing is teaching people to empty and sit with God, become converted, and then manifest that into their own into their own life. Right? That's the importance of the conversation we were having before about having that conversion first. We're not trying to bring you into a certain way of believing. We're bringing you into an experience with God where then you can just naturally manifest this humanity of Christ within your own life. And so the power of what this is what's really going on here is that we are leading lives of transformation. Not it's not intellectual to have one idea at one day and now you're converted and you have another idea another day. No, this conversion goes so deep into the soul of who and what we are, you know, into the fleshy tablets of our heart as it were. And so when we read that no prison can hold them, that all of the animals, the, they, they dug pits, nothing could hold them. Well, every violent means contrived at the time had no power over them. And you know what? And if it did like a Benedi, so what? It did. They have an eternal view and that's and it is what it is. And so they're gone with it. So I look at these verses and I see these disciples as powerful witnesses to what the actual priesthood power and the way of the Christ really is when confronted with the narratives of the world. Yeah, I don't think I have anything to add to that explanation. Of that. <laughs> That's great. We were looking at this uh, a little bit ago, and we, we identified an interesting part here towards the end of chapter 28, where it appears that uh, Mormon is writing about this, and he ends um, with a question at the end of verse 35. And this 
seems uh, appears to be the end of his writing for a time, so to speak, because at the beginning of the next verse, and, and then he explains in verse 37, he says, since I wrote, I have inquired of the Lord. And and it's very interesting for Mormon to end his writing here in verse 35 with a question. It also seems to, to be a little bit of a I wouldn't I wouldn't call him angry. I mean, I guess he could be angry when he's writing this, but he's he's a bit indignant, <laughs> right? In in these last verses ending in, in verse 35. So for him to end with that question, for me it raises the question of what's what's going on in Mormon's life right now that he uh he ends the writing here in verse 35 before he picks it back up in 36. And so I just, you know, I just kind of wonder what Mormon wrote verse 35. And then what Mormon wrote verses 36 and 37, you know, because here he says, since I wrote, I have inquired of the Lord and he hath made manifest unto me. To me, that's an indication of a revelatory process that he just went through, which would indicate a lot of repentance because anytime that a prophet has to go to the Lord for revelation, there's always a struggling in the spirit. There's always mighty fasting and prayer that we just got back in in chapter 27 and there's this whole process so i I just i kind of see a different mormon in verse 35 that i see in verses 36 and 37 yeah i mean this is a really fascinating section and as we were talking about this before i've I've been mentally thinking about this as we've kind of been talking our way forward to this uh to this section because i mean this is kind of about the three nephites and in he's He's going over multiple places and he, you know, he's identifying the three Nephites and things about them in different vignettes across along the way. But here he, he does, he goes on this little bit of a tangent where in verse, so there's 40 verses in 28. And you would think that the chapter break would happen here in the end of verse 35 because that's where like Mormon leaves. And we know he leaves because he says, well, since I wrote, it was like he came back. So, but it doesn't. So there's actually this time, and, and I love trying to get into Mormon's head about when he actually sat down to write and, and how he changed. And I like the way you put that, Ben. One Mormon wrote verse 35 and a different Mormon wrote verse 36. Also going back to one of the things you said before, Ben, about judgment and about how we often use judgment by fear as a motivator, that it, that we have a fear of judgment, a fear of punishment that we use punishment as a deterrent to doing something wrong. And so think about that when we read verse 35, because it says, and it would be better for them if they had not been born. For do you suppose that you can get rid of the justice of an offended God who hath been trampled under his feet by men and thereby salvation might come? And then he walks away. That's his question. That's the that's the question he gets up out of his chair and he walks away. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'll, I'm going to read it again, because now with that in mind, think about this again. And it would be better for them if they had not been born. For do you suppose that you can get rid of the justice of an offended God who hath been trampled under his feet, that thereby salvation might come? And he leaves his writing with a question mark. His, he's writing his thoughts down with, so this judgment by fear. Now, one Mormon gets up and leaves, and another Mormon comes back down and sits down. And he says, And now behold, as I spoke concerning these things, whom the Lord hath chosen, yea, even the three who were caught up into the heavens, that I knew not whether they were cleansed from mortality to immortality. But behold, since I wrote, I have inquired of the Lord, and he hath made it manifest unto me that there must needs be a change wrought about from their bodies, or else it must needs be that they must taste death. 
So he comes back with his revelatory process about the, the three Nephites. It's just very fascinating. It's, it's showing the Book of Mormon's authenticity of these possible breaks where he leaves and he comes back, he sits down, and in the moment, in, in, in the in-betweens, there's revelation. And so the Book of Mormon really is this fascinating book. And unless we're really looking for it, Mormon wrote this. I, I, you were doing the math, and I think we're going to get into that in just a minute. But Mormon wrote this math about about 50 years, right? He had about 50 years to write all of this. Yeah, between 50 and 60 years probably. Right. At the most. But uh, that's just the time period from when he got the records to when he died. Okay, so he's got a long period of time, right? Yeah, we don't know, you know, how much of that time he actually, you know, was able to dedicate to it because there was so much other stuff going on in his life. But yeah, he he had a good solid 50, possibly 60 years uh, to work on this. Even then, you know, he didn't feel like it was done. He had to pass it on to Moroni for Moroni to kind of finish things up. Yeah, so Moroni finishes it up. He gets it done. I, I don't see Mormon writing this all in one sit. And in fact, I mean, you know, we brought up with the war chapters. Oh, for sure. Right. No we, we, we brought up with the war chapters that there's quite a bit of evidence. And we brought up quite a bit of evidence that, that, might, that might be the first thing that he ever wrote. How he was writing about it, how he was dealing with it, Alma 28, and the, how the war chapters begin there. Without going back over it, it's just there's a lot of little evidences about what Mormon may have actually written first, how the Book of Mormon was originally compiled, and what that means, because no person goes through their whole life with one belief system. You end up having experiences and things change, and anyway, this is one possible little evidence of that happening. But then we come into chapter 29, he talks about the coming forward of the Book of Mormon, and about when you see the Book of Mormon coming in, that... He's like, listen, don't reject this. But I love this in verse five, where he says, woe unto him that spurneth at the doings of the Lord. Yea, woe unto him that shall deny the Christ and his works. You know, at first I'm like, yeah, that's just, that's just, you know, the Book of Mormon. I'm thinking like, you know, that person who, who says the Book of Mormon is false and who doesn't believe in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, that's, I don't, I don't believe that interpretation. Yeah, that's not what it says at all. Yeah. That's not what it says at all, right? I mean, it's in context of the Book of Mormon coming in, but who shall deny the Christ and his works? You know, verily, verily, what side? What manner of men are you to be, even as I am? Do the will of the Father, just like I have. And these are the works of Christ. And so we go into, I mean, this is the repentance process. Learn to see God differently. Don't deny it. And then in chapter 30, we have the two verses. We have this, hearken, O ye Gentiles, and hear the words of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, which he hath commanded me that I should speak concerning you. For behold, he commandeth me that I should write the saying. All right, well, this is, this is what he's commanded to write. Turn all ye Gentiles from your wicked ways, and repent of your evil doings, your lyings, your deceivings, and your whoredoms, and all of your secret, your secret abominations, your idolatries, and your murders, and your priestcrafts, your envies, your strifes, and all your wickedness and your abominations. And come unto me, and be baptized in my name, that ye may receive a remission of your sins, and be filled with the Holy Ghost, that ye may be numbered with my people who are of the house of Israel. Now, nothing against this. That means Jesus. I can't speak against that. That would be blasphemy. So, <laughs> that aside, I, I struggle at times to understand the context here, because, okay, don't lie. I get it. Don't go out to do to deceive other people. Get it. Whoredoms. Okay. Do I have secret abominations? Idolatries? I'm not out murdering people. I don't think I'm out doing priestcraft. Like there's nothing, there's nothing that I'm, I'm, I'm getting gain and setting up institutions and everything to get the praise in the, in, in, of the world through, through money, envying, strifes, wickedness. 
How much of this, Ben, do you see is actually going on in our daily life? Is all of this going on in our daily life in some form? I mean, maybe minus murders and whoredoms? President Kimball's talk on the false gods we worship really brought out the concept of idolatry in a different way than some people, including me, had thought about it before. And so I think that it could be that as we sort of spend some time pondering over this, that, that we might see how some of these things apply to us in ways that they hadn't before, kind of like the Lord is it I type of thing, right? But and then and then again, you know, maybe it doesn't apply to us. And if it doesn't apply to us, that's fine. He's not talking to us in that word, right? There's plenty of people that this could apply to. But always let's take the first the approach first and say, Lord, is it I or any of these things in my heart at all? The, the, these verses here, I mean, I think you're right. It is kind of odd for this just to be thrown in there because it's like, you know, this isn't saying anything that wasn't said about like 10 times in the previous chapters, right? But the scriptures are repetitive for many reasons. This is certainly poetic. The way that it lists all of these iniquities, right, is is sort of a, um, it's a literary device. It's a sort of poetic way of driving the point home. I almost see this as like Mormon had this revelation, right? This this strong feeling, this revelation that he like uh, wrote down on a piece of paper or something at some point. And as he's compiling the Book of Mormon, he was like, oh, you know, I wrote this beautiful poem, which was revealed to me, and uh, I'm going to include it right here at the end of this book. (laughs) (laughs) And obviously, that's just mere conjecture from me, but but it, it feels that way. When I read it, it feels more a little more poetic and something that, that that was really powerful for Mormon, a revelation he had that was particularly powerful for him. And so he was like, you know, this this really speaks to me and I'm going to put it in here. And then Joseph Smith translated it. And it's like, you know, in English, Mormon turns out doesn't quite sound as good as it did in your language, but we like it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. And I like the reference back, you know, with the word idolatries there, going back to President Kimball's, because yeah, that, that talk more than just what we, you know, the, the few, you know, five paragraphs that we typically use at it, the full first half of that talk is masterful in basically showing us that we can literally make anything an idol in our life. I've made the scriptures an idol before in my life. It's anything that I use that puts myself between my relationship with God and seeing my, seeing him new. Anything in my life that I put greater value to or that I put in the way of God revealing himself new is an idol. And so, yeah, I've used scriptures before to try to be like, nope, this scripture's here, violent, vengeful, wrathful God. It says right there in the scriptures. I damned myself in a long, for a very long time in that manner. It was something I had to repent for. It's something I'm still repenting from. I'm, I'm learning to see God in a new way, and I'm putting old ideas and old belief systems away, and simply not just trying to pick up a new belief system, because it's not like there's just a smorgasbord of beliefs, and it's like, I don't like this one, so I'm just going to abandon that one and pick this one up. It sounds more it sounds more nice to my soul. See, that's where the Beatitudes, and this is another thing that uh, talking about a loving and a kind and a compassionate God has gotten a lot of criticism. When there are so many aspects of a violent, vengeful, wrathful God that are supposedly, that are, that are explicitly mentioned, right? And that's where the Beatitudes become so powerful because it's not just like a buffet where it's like, you know what? I don't want a steak today. The steak looks rancid and I don't want that today. I'm going to go get some, some fish. So it's not like you're just like picking and choosing whatever it is you want from this, this buffet. But what it is, is that you're saying, listen, I'm going to completely abandon this whole thing. I'm going to fast from this whole buffet. I'm going to to work on just cleansing and purifying myself for a three-day fast, 
and I'm going to meditate. I'm going to see what God presents here for me. And like manna in the wilderness, as it were. And that's where the kind, benevolent, loving, kind, gracious God reveals himself. It's not that we're simply going through and just trying to use one hermeneutic and, and, and you know, exegesis and hermeneutics, you know, to be able to arrive at a God that we think is palatable. It's literally just to sit down and to try to be with God and see what happens and what presents itself and to recognize that then when we go through and we reapproach the Sermon on the Mount and we read his actual doctrine of what he says and then use that to proceed forward, the things revolutionize and change themselves. So yeah, I like that. Anything can be an idol. And so I like the way that you, uh, that you put that, Ben, about uh, bringing that idolatry. So fourth Nephi. <laughs> All this talk, we could literally probably spend another three hours just talking about fourth Nephi. But sure. one of the things that I've, I, I'm just, it's now now coming to me, and maybe this is Mormon laughing. I, I distinctly might just find that Mormons laughing at me. Now that we've given so much more emphasis to third Nephi and talking about third Nephi, it's almost as if fourth Nephi is just self-explanatory. If you really put in the effort of third Nephi, what's coming to me right now as I'm talking about it is you don't need to talk about 4th Nephi. Maybe you just you don't even need to talk about Zion, because if you've truly entered into the sphere and the relationship of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, if you've truly repented and you're starting to see God differently, if Mormon succeeded in his job of what he wanted to do and what the evidence shows that he wanted to do in 3rd Nephi, if we've really truly given enough work in 3rd Nephi, maybe 4th Nephi is just maybe even a little bit unnecessary. And they went and did so. <laughs> right <laughs> everything yeah. we just explained okay this people started living that yeah i mean i mean i see that I, I i get it you know there's there are a lot of things that they were commanded not to write and so there could be a lot of things about the way that they not necessarily structured their society but uh, operated that really can't be put to record or were seemingly complex and so describing them in a record that's abridged for us in our generation wouldn't be relevant or would take too much space and, and wouldn't really achieve Mormon's overall goal because he would just be describing a society that really is a natural outgrowth of all the principles that he just taught. And so it doesn't achieve anything necessarily. It would just be interesting. <laughs> yeah, I've I've gone through in my own scriptures on the margins. I've I've uh, I've written in the kind of some the themes of a lot of these. But here in uh, verse one of chapter four, or I'm sorry, fourth Nephi in chapter one, we have the disciples forming the church. There's repentance. There's baptism. The Holy Ghost is coming in. In verse two, we have conversion. So this goes back to our previous discussion about is the oath before the conversion or the conversion before the oath. In here, I don't know if Mormon putting in the conversion in verse two is a is is a chronological event or if it's just a rhetorical one as he was writing it. So was there conversion before it? I don't know. But at least if it if it is the fact that they made a covenant and an oath beforehand, at least in this case, they were converted. And so that conversion ran deep. Because usually throughout the Book of Mormon, when the oath is made before the covenant or before the conversion, it's just not as deep. That's why we have the pride cycles to go around so quickly in Helaman and 3rd Nephi. Mm -hmm. But then we have here with the conversion, we have there's no contention. They all deal justly with each other. That they You don't need laws and rules when people simply deal justly with each other without having to have an outside codex of rules. And then 
all things are in common. Well, that's something I think we should talk about a little bit. There's absolute freedom. There's peace. Um, in ver- end of verse 4, we have peace. Then in verse 5, there's just marvelous wonders, miracles, healing the sick, giving, you know, raising the dead, lame to walk, blind to receive, deaf to hear. And this was all done, it said, in the name of Jesus Christ. So then prosperity happens, growth happens. We have the strength and the beauty of the people as they, they go. In verse 11, we start seeing that there are, there's a lot of people who are getting married and growing and married and being married and uh, being given in marriage. There's realized promises that were given at one point and those have been now realized. The higher law of Christ is coming in, fasting and prayer. And then there's, again, there's no contentions. The love of God is in the hearts of, of all and there's no strife. There's no murders. And then of all things, what I, what I find is fascinating here is in, uh, what is it? Verse 17. And there were no robbers, neither murderers, neither were there Lamanites, nor any manner of ites. And they were just one. They were the children of Christ and heirs to the kingdom of God. In the Beatitudes, to become the children of God means you are a peacemaker. That's, that's the peacemaker. Mm-hmm. Blessed are the peacemakers for theirs is the, they, for their, for the children of God. If they're the children here of Christ, this is Beatitude speak. They've gone through that whole conversation. That's the conversation they're always cycling, cycling through. And then at that point in the year 84, Lamanites, um, there begin to be contentions. And the first evidence that we have of contentions are now we have nationalism again. We have tribalism. This identity thing comes back in. The, the ego, the natural man, the, the myself versus yourself kind of a thing. And then I think it's rather interesting because Nephites weren't really, it was the Lamanites that started to give the Nephites identity, but th- that doesn't happen until 231, a long time later. Costly peril pops back up and pride pops back up. They have no more goods in common. And then it just ends up being, uh, it, it kind of falls out from there. So going back then a little bit here to verse three, and they had all things in common among them. Therefore, they were, there were none that were rich and poor. There were, they were bond, there were no bond or free, or there were no bond, uh, but they were all free and they were all made free and partakers of the heavenly gift. In this, what is, you know, the free market laissez faire, I know the, the, the American conservative. Oh, you want to have this discussion. Okay. Well, (laughs) (laughs) this scripture has been relegated and pushed away for a very, very long time, you know, to have. You know, this is socialism. All things in common is like, well, no, it's right. not that they have all things in common. Because the socialist communist side of it wants to make all things in common by threat and coercion of violence by the state. We're going to steal by this person and take it to this person, and we're going to do it by coercion of taxation. Yeah, well, it's cart before the horse stuff. You know, it's it's what we talked about, you know, making that institution and then imposing the covenant upon, right? I mean, that that pattern. That's, it's not exactly what's happening, but that's that pattern, right? It's it's really getting things completely backwards. And because you get them completely backwards, um, you don't get them at all. You don't accomplish the actual ends of, of what's happening. This is just a, a manifestation or an outgrowth or a natural consequence of the state of being of these people. This is not a cause. This is an effect. Yeah, that's really powerful. That needs to be repeated. This is not the cause. This is the effect. Right. All goods in common happen 
Because people entered into the Beatitude conversation, they, they were Sermon on the Mount living people, they went through, they experienced Christ first and foremost, they were brought into the presence of what it is to be Christ, now this is the natural manifestation of our humanity. But it's not the goal, like it's not, like when you restructure society, the goal of the society is not, let's have everything in common. The goal is of, you know, of Christ if we can call it a goal, I don't even really like that word, but like the the cause of Christ, which I, I like that concept uh, better. The cause of Christ is to change our hearts, like you said, through the beatitude process. And this is just simply that manifestation, that effect of it. But it's not, this isn't the end goal. The end goal is to change our hearts. That's, that's it. Yeah. And amazing what happens after that. When we truly love God with all of our heart, might, mind, and strength, and we really, truly, honestly love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves, and that also includes loving ourselves, which requires us to repent so that we can love God and love ourselves so we can love our neighbor. It's all, this is all one discussion. We, I don't have to have a whole lot of laws between me and thee. You know, when we talk about our society and the way that our societies function and, and are ordered, all laws that come from the state and come from government are based and created and enforced through violence and coercion because of a rudimentary fear that we have against our neighbor. We need to enforce and to create laws to be able to curtail human behavior because we fear what our neighbor is going to do to us and we need to have a punishment severe enough to deter them to keep them from doing that. That's how society is based. But when we truly love God and truly love our neighbors ourselves, the entire underpinning of the narrative of civilization is upended and turned on its head. Just like you said, it's putting the cart before the horse. What society tries to do is it tries to create an open uh, society where there's no rich or no poor while ignoring the premise of loving God and loving our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. And by the way, that self has to be, again, repentance. And so we can see ourselves clearly as with God. But what ends up happening isn't peace like we see with this people that actually just creates more contention and strife. Somebody posted in one of the groups that I'm in the other day something about how we would bring about, you know, the end of violence and, and wars. And if it would just, you know, if we could just get everybody to get rid of their weapons, would that solve the problem? My comment was just trying to like, sort of let's go, let's step back a second here, because the goal is not to get rid of weapons. That's not, we're not trying to get rid of weapons. That's not like once we've gotten rid of all the weapons, then we've achieved our goal. That is not the goal. The goal is to, again, as if I were to use that word, the point is to bring people into a relationship with God, that beatitude process inherit the kingdom of God. And then what you might see as an effect of that is that the use of weapons becomes irrelevant, you know, swords to plowshares types of thing. But again, that's the cause, not the effect. And so you're, you're not going to achieve peace by destroying all weapons. It's impossible. Yeah, you can't take, you know, and that's why me as a nonviolence guy, like I, I, I'm an open nonviolence guy, but in the United States, we have this second amendment. It's our, it's our law. It's in our bill of rights that we have the, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So we have this written into our whole American psyche that we have the right to defend ourselves violently. And for me as a nonviolence guy, I'm a supporter of the second amendment simply for the fact is, is I don't believe that I can use government to come in and to disarm my neighbor. Because if my, if the government comes in to disarm my neighbor, 
all it's going to create is ill will between the government and my neighbor, and then he's going to only have justification for why he has his guns, right? Yeah. And so he's going to double down on his narrative Doesn't about why he's some- any measure of peace. None whatsoever. And it only fans the fire to it, right? It only just fans this and makes it big. It's just a bunch of gasoline on the fire here. But what if we come over and we reconcile between me and thee to where me as a nonviolence guy, my entire neighborhood can be packed to the hilt or it can be completely disarmed. And it makes no difference because me as a self, as someone who believes in the self-sacrificing and the and the long-suffering of Christ, and who bears the name of Christ, we go out there into society and we do what Christ did. We don't believe that two swords, that you know, that whole thing in Luke about Jesus telling his disciples to go by two swords and having that be sufficient. Two swords isn't going to be a revolution. And then right. when Peter uses the sword, Jesus is like, oh, man, <laughs> put your sword away. <laughs> He's like, that's not the point. I mean, we're not starting a revolution here at the end with two swords. Put your sword away. Those who use the sword are going to die by the sword. You you rely on the arm of flesh, you're going to die by it. And we see, yeah, it's just that, and I love what you're saying here is that the conversion has to come first, and then we just naturally beat swords into plowshares because we have no use for swords anymore. They're just not a thing that we need to rely upon. It's just not a thing. So we get here into a discussion of the Church of Christ persisting as such while society and the world around them starts disintegrating and uh, what what happens here well what happens is the true church of christ becomes uh, increasingly persecuted you know to the point of them actually trying to kill the disciples or or the followers of christ in verse 34 the people that hardened their hearts and they were led by many priests and false prophets to build up many churches and do all manner of iniquity. And they did smite upon the people of Jesus, but the people of Jesus did not smite again. Here we have a description of a people who, despite the fact that Christ came and quote unquote, the more wicked part of the people were destroyed. And then he was able to establish his church among them. And they lived in perfect harmony and peace for a couple hundred years, these people, notwithstanding the world changes around them and the whole narrative of the Beatitudes becomes completely impractical as the world would see it, they still continue to live it because that's who they are. And that's they are citizens of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God doesn't cease to exist simply because the world becomes more powerful or more turbulent around them. They are citizens of the kingdom of God, and they will behave as such. Yeah, I like that a lot. In fact, (laughs) I marked that like three times there in verse 34. Mm -hmm. And they did smite upon the people of Jesus, but the people of Jesus did not smite again. You know, it goes back to DNC 98. It goes back to everything that we've been talking about. That goes back to the sermon at the temple. That goes back to everything. That's... I mean, the early Christians after Jesus, for the first two or three hundred years, the early primitive Christians for all that time, they were known because they were nonviolent. They wouldn't even serve in the military. They wouldn't serve in government because that's the arm of coercion and violence. So when we look at Jesus here as the archetype of our humanity and everything that we see him do, we see the woman taken in adultery. We see his first messenger going out as this woman who's had seven husbands and is not even living with a man who is her husband. And yet she's there, not even a Samaritan, or not even a Jewish person, she's a Samaritan, and she goes out 
as a Samaritan, is the first kind of prophetess, as it were, to proclaim the Messiah. We worship an amazing God. But the thing is, is he doesn't even command us to worship him. He just tells us to follow him. It's just a power. It's a powerful thing. It's, it's, he's so, he's so worthy of worship, but yet he's like, just, just follow, just, just follow. And I've, I've done it for you. I've shown you how to do it. I've, I've proven to you it can be done. And I'm there with you, suffering with you every moment. I'm not going to leave you alone. I love you and I'm here for you. And all those things that we, that accuser that comes into our, our lives that tells us that we're not enough and we're not sufficient and all the identities that we have that we want to hide from God in. Yeah. We, we want the world to crush us. We want the world to fall upon us to hide us. But that's the very point where Christ comes in and, and that's the very part of ourselves that he's touching. That's where the mercy of Christ truly becomes the greatest is in those places of our lives that we think are the worst parts of ourselves. And there's no judgment. There's no rush. There's no hurry. There's no thinking that things should be otherwise than what they are. It's simply the acceptance of saying, this is, I know this is where you're at and I'm going to be with you, with you here. It's a very, it's a very tender moment and it's a very powerful way of being able to see God in a new way, to see him as the eternal advocate with our fault, with the father. Not against the Father, not in opposition to the Father, not that the Father is sitting there on the other side of the of the bar, but that Jesus Christ is there as the advocate with the Father. Behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and the eternal life of man. That's just who God is. And we've imagined a God other than that. And what I've loved the most about talking with God, or talking about Christ in these scriptures— and and I think I've gotten an answer. I don't know if it came from you know I have I have this uh, I I have this uh, mental story that I often tell myself of like pondering over questions and then like getting an answer from the person I would like to talk to like Mormon. And in several of these podcasts, I've been like, yeah, I want to talk to Mormon. And it's almost as if I can hear Mormon's voice being like, listen, if you have a problem with the length of fourth Nephi, you haven't truly understood third Nephi. And I think I get it now. I think I'm starting to get it now. I, I love where the end of, not necessarily the end, but where, where Fourth Nephi goes next with the explanation because he circles back to a discussion of identity here. You contrast verse 17 with verse 36, and it's very interesting here. There's two things that could be going on, and either way, you know, it, it, it's interesting. Verse 36, and it came to pass that in this year there arose a people who were called the Nephites, and they were true believers in Christ. And among them were those who were called by the Lamanites, Jacobites and Josephites and Zoramites. It appears here that this people isn't calling themselves Nephites. It says people who were called the Nephites. And then later it qualifies and says that the Lamanites were the ones calling them these things, Nephites, Jacobites and Josephites and Zoramites. And so the Lamanites, these who have gone off and taken upon themselves this different name, now start throwing these labels and names, identities upon these Nephites, who they say are the true believers in Christ. Now, it's possible that these Nephites did accept these, and I think there's evidence to say that, that this is one of the main problems with how we see their downfall. But at least at the beginning, it doesn't appear that they took upon themselves this name. What they've taken upon themselves as a name is the name of Christ. But the Lamanites started calling them this. It says, therefore, the true believers in Christ and the true worshipers of Christ, among whom 
where the three disciples of Jesus who should tarry were called Nephites and Jacobites and Josephites and Zoramites. And the implication is there they were called that by the Lamanites, who were called Lamanites, Lemuelites, Ishmaelites. It says, and, because, and it was because of the wickedness and abomination of their fathers, even as it was in the beginning, and they were taught to hate the children of God, even as the Lamanites were taught to hate the children of Nephi from the beginning. We re-enter this narrative of Nephite and Lamanite. And this is goes way back to our discussion that we had about how Alma prophesies the destruction of, quote, this very people, the Nephites. And they aren't literally the same people in terms of descendancy and DNA. They are the intellectual successors or the identity successors, if you want to call it that, of the Nephites. What's interesting here, what stood out to me here, is that they didn't initially call themselves that. It was their their enemies or their cultural rivals, the Lamanites that had separated themselves from that, that started calling them Nephites and, and Jacobites and Josephites. And then what happened is that over time, they accepted that identity that their enemies were calling them, rather than maintaining their identity uh, as Christ. And so I see them slipping into this, this anti-enemy narrative instead of pro-kingdom of God. As President Kimball talks about, they start identifying with this Nephite culture rather than the culture of Christ. That was kind of a theme in conference as well. Yeah. And everything that you're talking is this is not anything unlike the Mormon name itself. Mormon was a pejorative name that people had used against to make fun of the Church Mm -hmm. of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mormon was a name that they used to, to ridicule and to mock. And we adopted it. That became the name that we did. Just like, just like what you're saying the Nephites did here, that's what we did. Interesting the repentance process that we've had to go through to be able to then take ourselves and to say, no, we're not taking that name upon us anymore. We're shifting back to Christ. Yeah, that is interesting. And that, you know, that, that really gives a little more weight to it than, than maybe we had, had been accepting before, you know, that, that this is something that, that can be, can be more serious if we take it as such. You know, again, we want to look at things in the right order. That we don't we don't look at the physical before the spiritual. Um, we don't just say we're taking upon ourselves the name of Christ when we really haven't, because that that could create other problems. We really want to re-examine ourselves and say, do I want this? And if I want this, am I really ready for it? Really ready to take upon myself the name of Christ? And then we will see everything else flow from that rather than, you know, the other way around, the imposition of the covenant. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to think about that one for a while. That's a, that's really good. I'm glad you put it in those terms. So um, I did a little bit of Book of Mormon math. I know we're, you know, pretty pretty far on time here, but I did a little bit of Mormon math that was, was interesting to me. <laughs> and I don't know if it's going to be interesting to anybody else, but it appears that uh, the prophets, uh, keepers of the record at this time are living exceptionally long. Uh, lives. So the the Nephi here that is the disciple of Christ, so we have Alma, Alma, Helaman, Helaman, Nephi, Nephi, so that second Nephi, he, uh, according to the calculations that I did about the years and, and everything it says in the record, he appears to have been at least 130 years old when he died. Wow. And then his son is named Amos, which, you know, I'd never done this progression. Alma, Alma, Helaman, Helaman, Nephi, Nephi, Amos, Amos. So we've got two Amoses. The first Amos, uh, 
probably was at least 140 when he died. And the second Amos, I need, I need someone to double check my math because the second Amos seems like he's almost 100 and something like 180 years old when he dies. And then we have Amaron who ends up his Amos's brother. And Amaron is Nephi's grandson. I'd never made that connection before. I mean, it's right there, but I'd never made that connection before. Amaron, the guy who talks to Mormon and says, go get the plates, is Nephi's grandson. So Amaron comes to Mormon in about 320 AD and says, Mormon, go get the plates when you're 24. And Mormon's like 10 years old at the time. <laughs> I don't know. Like if somebody told me, hey, in 14 years, go do something. And I'm a 10 year old. How would I remember that to do that? That's a discussion for next week, maybe. But anyway. Yeah, this is a discussion for next week, and I'm going to bring it back up, but I love how he's 10 years old, and the thing that Amaron really comes in, he's like, I see that you're a sober child. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, he's 10 years old, and he's the one that's not drunk out here. Uh, oh. <laughs> it, it, is, is that what we're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure it has other meanings, but I've always thought it was kind of funny. Yeah, it is. So anyway, the, the math on this is interesting. If somebody is interested in this type of thing, I'd love for them to dig in and uh, see if I calculated something wrong. But all of this um, turns out to make it look like Mormon was uh, born about 310 AD. Um, he gets the records about 334 AD when he's 24 years old. And then he lives till about 385, between 385 and 400 AD. So making him, you know, about 75, between 75 and 90 years old. And so he had something like 50 to 60 years of lifetime in order to abridge and, you know, do all of his work with the Book of Mormon, which was probably, you know, sounds like plenty of time, but we don't know all of his constraints. He probably had to do all of this in hiding because the records were probably, some of them were pretty valuable. Um, he had to do it all in hiding. So he would have had to spend time away potentially from his family. He had to do it when he wasn't out at war. You know, lots of travel involved, lots of difficulty in engraving. So anyway, it's just kind of an interesting thing to think about in terms of, of Mormon's lifestyle that he had to live in order to complete this work that the Lord gave him. Yeah. I'm going to have a lot of fun talking about uh, the Book of Mormon here. These are some excellent chapters. There's going to be a lot of uh, interesting takeaways that we're going to have, especially in, I think, in trying to juxtapose everything that we've talked about here in Third Nephi. With, with how the deterioration of how their society works versus how our society reflects more of mm. the people here in the Book of Mormon, I think is that's going to be a really fun discussion. Yeah, look forward to it. Cool. Well, guys, next week we will talk about Mormon 1 through 6. Uh, thank you for listening to us this long. Yeah, I think we, Fourth Nephi, we get to talk for hours about that, but, uh, but I, I like what we uh, were able to get into. So until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you guys for listening. <laughs>